I'm someone who loves trying out different makeup looks, but doesn't really wear much on a daily basis, so I like to focus on making sure I have high quality staples. And whether you like a fresh face, full glam, or somewhere in between, you've probably seen Thrive Cosmetics Viral Tubing Mascara. I've certainly seen it everywhere, you know the one in the turquoise tube? So that mascara, along with all of Thrive Cosmetics beauty products, are certified 100% vegan and cruelty-free, which I look for in makeup, and they've got excellent quality to match. And something I didn't know from all the mascara videos I've seen is that for every product sold, Thrive Cosmetics donates either that same product, another product that is needed more, or a monetary donation. They've worked with over 500 nonprofits to help with a wide range of causes like supporting cancer survivors, people experiencing homelessness, education access, and so much more. Knowing that makes me feel even better about using their products. And I do enjoy using them. Like I said, I like having high quality staples, and so my favorites are products that are multi-purpose, like the Brilliant Eye Brightener. It comes in a bunch of colors, and I like using them as eyeliner, eyeshadow, and even highlighter. Thrive Cosmetics is luxury beauty that gives back. Right now, you can get an exclusive 20% off your first order at thrivecosmetics.com thrive. That's Thrive Cosmetics, C-A-U-S-E-M-E-T-I-C-S, dot com slash thrive for 20% off your first order. Battleground Productions presents Brass, the audio series. Episode 28, Graveyards and Lodge Halls. The year is 1886, but not one that would be familiar to you. For in this world, a golden age of statecraft, technology, and political enlightenment has fallen under a sinister cloud with the election of a dangerous new prime minister, engineered by a sinister and still anonymous villain. The Brass family are currently engaged in a series of harrowing missions, including the youngest of the Brass family, Cyril, who on this chilly March evening is making his way across Paris in the company of that formidable figure of unparalleled athleticism, Lord Whitestone, also known as Tucknall, King of the Ape People. It's awfully decent of you to come along on this mission to find the Graveyard King, Lord Whitestone. I am happy to, Ciro Brass. I doubt I'll need any help, but I appreciate the company. Absolutely. Also, your father said that graveyards and human bones give you the creeps. What? No. Well, yes. They do, rather. Don't they give you the creeps? They are only a part of the cycle of existence. When one of my tribe of apes would die, we would lay the body out where the animals of the forest could feast upon it, bringing the needless body back into utility. What is not eaten erodes back into the soil. Life feeds on death and brings it back to life again. Well, that sounds somewhat... I do not understand why, in this society, you slow this process down by burying the bodies in wooden boxes. It must take the worms a long time to eat through. Could we possibly change the topic? Of course. What shall we talk about? Something else. All right. I like your mustache. Oh, you do? Yes, Cyril Brass. I know you have only assumed it as a part of your disguise, but I think it makes you look quite dashing. Thank you. (laughs) I didn't really know if I could pull it off. You do? Do you think I should grow one? That one isn't real. How marvelous! No, it's applied with spirit gum. 
You and your family are so ingenious. I wonder why they call it spirit gum. I... I don't know. I'm really not quite sure why graveyards and skeletons and that sort of thing give me the creeps. Why did you volunteer for reconnaissance of someone called the Graveyard King, then? Well, I always think it's best to just tackle what you're afraid of straight on. Nearly every time I've done that, I've found that it's nowhere near as scary as I thought it would be. That is a fine philosophy towards life. I shall try and adopt it. And you'll see. We'll get through this whole little outing without seeing as much as a coffin. Though this is Paris. The whole place is like a fancy tomb. You know, Lord Whitestone, I think I rather hate this city. Really? Well, I prefer the savannas and jungles of my youth. I think Paris is a lovely city, with many beautiful buildings and scenic streets. Do they not call it La Ville Lumiere? La Ville Lumiere? City of Light? I suppose they do. But that's not taking into account all of the graveyards, ossuaries, and other memento mori scattered about this metropolis. They do like their cemeteries. It's also dreary and morbid. And the cafe scene. Oh, whatever are they thinking with their coffee and their absinthe? One keeps you up all night, the other makes you fuzzy, and both taste vile. But you are much taken with French fashion, are you not? I can't believe I'm saying this. But one cannot live by fashion alone. I've a soft spot for poetry, you know. And so I thought I'd pick up some of this fond de siècle stuff I've heard about. Somehow or other, they managed to make decadence sound not just dull, but incomprehensible. Take this Rambo fellow. A poet, yes? I suppose. But I picked up a copy of his Illuminations. And there's never been a book with a more misleading title. Couldn't make heads or tails of it. No, for me, Paris in the springtime makes me yearn for Mayfair. It's so much more pretty and lively. (laughs) Ah, here we are. And where is that? You see this wall? I figure it to be about 12 feet. On the other side of this wall is Montmartre Cemetery. We need to find a way of getting over it. All right. Need a hand up? Uh, uh, Yes, thanks. There. Getting down is easier. Yes, I can manage. I I keep forgetting just how strong you are, Lord Whitestone. Oh, you've got a very slight frame, Cyril Brass. What is our plan? We're trying to discover which of the cemeteries might be the Parisian headquarters of the Graveyard King. Last night I visited Cimetière du Père Lachet, and tonight it's Montmartre. He lives in a cemetery. It's rather his modus operandi, along with the fact that he's quite ridiculously cheap. Living in a cemetery sounds very uncomfortable. And damp. And cold. Well, quiet neighbors in any case. What clues are we looking for? Night traffic of some sort. Perhaps the shine of a bullseye lantern. Or a procession of hearses. Well, I doubt it would be that obvious. I wonder where that procession is going, then. Good lord. Five, six, seven... How many hearses are there? I count ten. Well, let's follow behind as discreetly as possible and see what's going on. They're going down different paths. Uh, Let's choose that one. And so the two young men, 
one stealthy as a cat and the other a panther, follow behind the dark and craped conveyance of coffins, gliding like shadows from cenotaph to tombstone. The hearse turns, then turns again, then stops near an open grave. Four men dressed in mourner's garb get out of the cab and approach a grave over which is stretched a waterproof cloth. Are they taking that coffin out? They are indeed. Grave robbers. Wait. Now they're pulling a coffin out of the hearse. And it looks like they're set to put that one in the grave instead. So it seems less like grave robbing. Grave switching? Is that a crime? Well, it must be. In any case, I think it's time for us to get to the graveyard, King. What is our strategy? There are only four of them. Shall we knock them unconscious and dress in their clothes? We could, but it might take longer than I'd like. And we'd have to pretend we were guards, and that's always annoying. Hmm. I think I've got it. Hello? Hello there. Do any of you speak English? Uh, I do. Très bon. Hello. My friend and I are delighted to meet you. Uh, bonsoir. We're British agents, and we're here to stop this and arrest you. Okay. Yes. Arrest you. Now, why don't you take us to your head man, whoever he might be, and we'll get this all sorted out in one conversation. Are you sure of this strategy, Cyril Brass? Oh, fairly sure. If it doesn't work out, apologies. Ten minutes later, Cyril and Lord Whitestone, along with an escort of four armed guards, are under a mausoleum in the subterranean lair of that formidable Franco foe, the Graveyard King. Hello. Good evening. But what are you doing in the cemetery tonight? Well, we were... Uh... Perhaps you were sniffing about for the grave of some famous English person? Some great artist or writer of England who you hope to visit? Are there any buried here? No. This is the graveyard of France. Buried here are the great men and women of France. Yeah, that's disappointing. Besides, there are no great artists or writers of England. Excuse me? You heard me. Well... Whitestone! And that's for J.M.W. Turner, and that's for Charles Dickens! Zuzalo! Who are you? We are British agents sent to arrest you. Or at least interrogate you. Interrogate me? Yes, regarding your nocturnal practice of grave robbing. Or at least grave switching. I see. Well, I shall tell you whatever it is you want to know. Only no more fisticuffs, n'est-ce pas? Very well. I... you have me quite rattled, gentlemen. I must sit for a moment. All right. Are you reaching under your desk? If that is a firearm, I would not recommend retrieving it. You fools. It's not a firearm. It's a... It's a... Where is that clicking coming from? Vazi! Vazi! I think it's under our feet. Ah! Work! Work! Damn you! It's a trapdoor. Vet! We should move off. Typical graveyard king. He's just cheap. That's his problem. Mr. King, we have questions for you. Uh, uh. Ah! 
We should have moved. Yes. Yes, you're right. Where are we? In the dark. And in the water. Deep water? And close walls. A well, perhaps. Yes. I can feel... Uh... What's that? Oh, I'm fairly certain it's a human skull. Let me... Oh, you're right. The walls of this pit seem to be constructed of human skulls. What is with the French and ossuaries? Hmm. What's our next step? How about we find a way of getting out of a well in some lunatic's graveyard lair that's made out of human skulls? <laughs> so, you're laughing a little, huh? You call him cheap. Now he's doing the laughing. A trapdoor! So very clever! It's only a matter of time before we climb out, you know. Oh, that may well be true. You are both clearly very strong men. Only, you know, it is still you at the bottom of the well right now. And I am at the top. Francois, you know, even without seeing you, you are quite the target. Nespar, let's see. Here's something. That was a letter over there. It could have been a dagger, of course, or something else. What is that expression you English have? Like shooting monkeys in a barrel. Fish. No, there were monkeys in the barrel. More fun than a barrel of monkeys is the expression. Never mind. I have just sent one of my sacristans out to the arsenal to bring back a cart full of cannonballs. Cannonballs? You find such interesting things digging in the dirt of Harry. These were, I expect, from one revolution or another. You don't need very good aim dropping cannonballs down into a well. <laughs> I bet I would hit some monkeys. Fish! This is not good, Cyril Brass. This is not good, Lord Whitestone. Any ideas? I'm drawing a blank. Ideas are not always my forte. Aha! Merci, Francois. Now, gentlemen, how uh, do you say in English? That is not thunder you hear rolling from the hills. That is the cannons. I don't think we say that. Well, it sounds better in French anyways. Entre les collines, fallait ton nom qu'on entend, c'est les cannons. Let us turn our gaze away from this terrifying spectacle and back to the familiar environs of London at a small social hall in Hammersmith, one in a notably obscure location, fronted by armed guards and a woman dressed in severe black who greets the cloaked figure who approaches. Good evening, and you are? Kensington Gore. Happy to have you here, Mr. Gar. My name is O'Leary. I've taken over for Mr. Crawford since you were last here. Mm. Ah. We're used to seeing your designated proxy, Mademoiselle Trasano. I trust she is well? Well enough. Good, mm. good. If you'd like to enter and turn to the right into the lodge, we're about to begin. Mm. Thank you. She passes down a plain wooden hallway and comes out into a small auditorium with a raised stage at one end of the room, its heavy black curtains drawn. File in, ladies and gentlemen. File in and take a seat. 
We'd like to thank the Club of Queer Trades for giving us access to this hall this month. Not that they were given much choice. Most of you, I assume, are clear on the evening's proceedings. For those who are not, this is the monthly lottery. Following a brief address from the Crime Minister, those of you who desire to speak in private with him will come to me and give your bid to do so. This month, the opening bid is £100. Once the bids are received, we shall begin seeing you in order of the size of your bid. Any questions? Yes. Vincent Law here. Is there a ruling on whether or not the Crime Minister will see a consortium who give a combined bid? Yes, but all business of that consortium must be conducted by a single agent. I see. Any further questions? Then, without further ado, ladies and gentlemen, our leader. As the heavy black curtains part, they reveal a figure clothed entirely in black, sitting at a small desk, his face invisible inside a cowl like a monk's habit. Thank you, O'Leary. Welcome, my friends. I'm pleased to see so many querents attending our little monthly salon. This is evidence that business is doing as well for you as your percentage payments to me indicate. I hope to hear many clever schemes and ingenious plots this evening. This always puts me in a good mood. But it is fascinating to see how many ways human desires and frailties can be turned into coin of the realm. Speaking of our realm, I'm pleased to welcome a visitor from outside of it, General George Pickett, all the way from the great Confederate States of America. General Pickett shall be my first querent this evening. While we speak, the rest of you are free to take your bids to the agent who shall begin collecting them. Please make haste, and doing so, my time, as you are aware, is exceedingly valuable. As the various criminal bosses mill and chat, the curtains on the small stage draw shut. Gwendolyn sits watching the curtains, and a moment later, a muscular stagehand with a sailor's rolling gait steps out of the small doorway to the side of the stage, making his way towards the American general. Gentlemen and ladies, this way please, if you have bids to give me at this time. As the mass of criminal bosses crosses to the agent, bids in hand, Gwendolyn ducks into the doorway to the minuscule backstage. From the side, she sees the figure in black sitting at his desk, now lit by a single candle. With deft determination, she slips behind the black curtains running along the back wall. Her heart is pounding so loud in her chest, she thinks it must be heard by the man in the dark. But a moment later, the stagehand reappears and deposits General Pickett in the chair opposite the desk. General? Crime Minister. Is that an official title? It amuses me to pretend that it is. Now, General, I believe you have come to me with a proposition. I have. As you know, relations between the British Empire and the Southern States of America have been, for some time, poor. That is an understatement. Your nation is treated as a pariah because of your refusal to consider manumission of your slave population. It is the principle on which I fought for our independence. 
Slavery has been condoned by the Bible and by the ancient Greeks. It is a natural state of affairs. And as for your male and female slaves, whom you may have from the nations that are around you, from them you may buy male and female slaves. Leviticus 25.44 That is correct, sir. Yes, and for that some should rule and others be ruled is a thing not only necessary but expedient. From the hour of their birth, some are marked out for subjection, others for rule. Aristotle. But, General, the rules and strictures of an obscure desert tribe and the justifications of a wine-sotted philosopher are out of step with our time. Sir, as you know, the official policy of the British Empire is to capture any ship that they determine to be engaged in the African slave trade. I do not see any change in such policy. A pity. For the prosperity that would be poured upon us by the teeming thousands from the plains of Africa could be stupendous. But let that be. There are other places with men and women who, though they be evolved somewhat from the Negroid race, still are, as Aristotle said, marked out for subjection. Where, in particular, attracts your attention? Our neighbors to the south and our island neighbors to the east. You are referring to... Despite their appearance of government and trappings of state, both... Mexico and the island of Cuba are less nations than unclean bits of mongrel peoples. Hmm. So you have plans to open up these trade routes? Imminent, sir. Why are you telling me this? There is profit and mutual benefit to be had, Crime Minister. From me you seek... An agreement to leave this trade alone, as well as our access to British industry, in particular your celebrated arms dealers. A bold request? One that we can pay for. With what, General? The southern states produce much cotton and cloth, it is true, but not enough to pay for what you would need in weapons. Crime Minister, consider the slave. What is he? Or should we say, what is it? For the wonderful quality of a slave is its potential to be so many different things. A slave is, in many ways, similar to a human being. It can work as hard, if not harder, and it can reason after a fashion. If treated with a degree of care... It can live nearly as long. We are not interested in purchasing slaves from you, General Pickett. And why is that? Slaves are antiquated. With all of the great richness of resources your nation has, you insist on a rural existence, growing cotton and tobacco. We have Lascars and Coolies who we pay very little and who work just as hard, and not to mention automatons who work twice as hard, but we pay not a penny. You misunderstand me, Prime Minister. As I said, a slave is a creature of potential. I agree that agricultural labor is an inefficient and often unprofitable venture, but in my travels about your country, 
I have had my eyes opened. Why, just last week, I was visiting the portable steam engine factory of Richard Garrett and Sons in Suffolk. Ah, yes, the long shop. A young colleague of mine, uh, Mr. Ford, suggested I drop in. This idea of an assembly line is relevatory. The work required of most of the workers is not particularly skilled. Some of it is excessively repetitive, and even a creature of limited reason would be able to perform it. So, you are proposing a change of industry? Precisely. The slave is made for factory work. For what is he but a machine with some sort of brain? As any factory owner would tell you, the greatest drain on his profits is paying his workforce. I must say, General Pickett, I am impressed. Your proposal has much merit. Thank you, sir. And what sort of industries do you propose supplying? Mm, oh, any variety. Work that is particularly hazardous, sir. Deleterious to the lungs, of course, makes the most sense. Munitions, for example. There shall always be such work that needs to be done, and there must always be those who do it. Precisely. Speak with O'Leary before you leave this evening. We must meet again while you are in London. I had intended to leave at the end of the week, but I'm happy to wait at your convenience. Good day, sir. The general turns and leaves through the doorway, but Gwendolyn still stands, peering at the figure at the desk who continues to sit, unmoving. Knowing she only has a moment at best to exit, she stops, staring at the back of his head. She pulls out a small Derringer pistol and takes aim. Then with a shake of her head, she moves behind the curtain to the doorway. After seeing nothing for a moment, she exits to the auditorium. She scans the room discreetly, looking to see if she's been noticed, but sees no sign of it. Kensington Gore. Hmm? Why, it's absolutely lovely seeing you again. Now let me see, when was the last time? I think it must have been the first of these little meetings four months ago. Do you remember... I said I'd begun to doubt your very existence after seeing Mademoiselle Tresano so often and you so infrequently. Ah, yes. I'm sorry. I must go. Ah, what a pity. I had hoped to learn more about you. As I always say, there's no better way to meet a new friend than through work. And now we work in at least the adjacent fields. But as Gwendolyn turns and leaves the loathsome literarian, she does not see that one pair of eyes have watched her from almost the moment she has arrived with a practised and cunning discretion. As she makes her way to the entryway, a lanky and louche figure detaches himself from a group of chatting villains and begins to follow her. Trapped 
in an ossuary well, surrounded by a gathering of the most dangerous people in England, what will be the fate of our heroes? To learn more, join us soon for the next episode of Brass. Brass is manufactured by Battleground Productions and features Kate Cray as Lady Brass, Charles Leggett as Lord Brass, Catherine Grant Sutty as Gwendolyn Brass, and Jeremy Adams as Cyril Brass, with Larry Albert, Margie Bickman, Lisa Carswell, Yusuf L. Gindy, Nancy Fry, Ronnie Hill, Philip Keeman, John Longenbar, Matt Middleton, Terry Edward Moore, Tad Morgan, and Nikki Vissel. Brass was recorded at Seattle Voice Academy, engineered by Shana Pennington-Bard and Chris Lea, with sound designed by Kirsty Gilmore and music composed by Bruce Monroe. It was written and directed by John Longenbaugh. For more information on Brass, go to battlegroundproductions.org, find us on Facebook and Instagram, and to support us, fund us on Patreon, and leave a review wherever you listen to your podcasts. <laughs>